Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey guys, uh, no CanadaLand today, off for the holidays, but you came here for something great to listen to, and you know, I have just the thing, it's the least I can do, is give you a great podcast to listen to, from a different show on our network, The Imposter. I don't know if you have been listening to The Imposter. I'll be honest with you, not enough people are listening to The Imposter for how good a show it is. I'm not the only one who thinks so. The AV Club... Um, they have this writer there, Ben Cannon, who uh, was a great booster and supporter of The Imposter in his writing uh, on the Onions AV Club. Are they still the Onions AV Club? The AV Club, where out of all of the podcasts in the entire podcast universe of the world, not just Canada, he, he, he has singled out The Imposter time and again. Uh, ben Cannon now has a podcast criticism website called Constant Listener. And again and again, he has championed the imposter. He has called it a bit of a miracle, one of the finest, most compulsively listenable shows in the world of podcasts today. The imposter, writes Ben, deserves high praise for producing a show that is sonically distinct, constantly engaging, and actively expanding the very notion of Canadianness. That's really wonderful praise. I think it's earned. You know, a lot of podcasts sound the same, and I think one of the challenges we've had in trying to grow the audience uh, for The Imposter is that it doesn't sound like anything else out there, and it doesn't always even sound like itself week after week because it is experimental and daring, and I'm, I've been really proud to publish it. 
this is an episode today of The Imposter that Constant Listener has chosen as one of the best podcast episodes of 2017. This dude listens to everything in the entire world of podcasting, and he chose eight episodes, eight episodes, like an episode of The Heart, an excellent episode of Radiolab, and an episode of The Imposter, and he singled them out as the best podcast episodes of 2017. To Kevin Sexton and Aaliyah Pabani, who made this episode, congratulations. And to those of you who have not heard this episode yet, here it is. From Canada land, this is The Imposter, and I'm Aaliyah Pabani. On this episode... And the amplifier caught on fire, and two guys had to take it outside and throw it in the snow. I felt like uh, Mick Jagger. From the 1960s to about the mid-80s, Indigenous artists from across North America were making music that reflected their culture through folk, country, rock, blues, and jazz. One of the standouts from this fusion is someone you might have heard of, an artist named Buffy St. Marie. If you haven't heard of her, you've definitely heard this song. This story starts with a piece from producer Maya Roisin Slater, and it's about another musician from that era. Unlike Buffy St. Marie, he didn't write a song for Joe Cocker, but his legacy is finally being recognized almost 40 years after he recorded his first album. A couple years ago, a magazine asked me to review a re-release from American label Light in the Attic Records. It was called Spirit Child, recorded for the CBC by Inuit singer-songwriter Willie Thrasher in 1981. Like any good rookie freelancer, I squandered most of the time I had re-watching Gilmore Girls and reading about cult murders on Wikipedia. So on the morning the piece was due, I decided it might be a good time to actually listen to the album. I was astonished. Yeah, I'm gonna... 
Uh, my name is uh, William Thrasher, Willie, which I'm well known across Canada or around the world. I'm originally from Aklavik and the Nuvik Northwest Territories. I was a member of the Cordell Band that started me off in the music at a young age, and I survived a residential school, and I've been a music traveling man ever since. There's an intimacy to this music. Songs like Eskimo Named Johnny and Shingle Point Whale Camp draw from his life, a childhood traveling with his parents to different fishing camps, an adolescence in residential schools, and an adulthood as a touring musician leaving his community. The album includes elements of traditional Inuit music, like hand drums and chants, but at the heart of it all is rock and roll, which is where Willie got his start. I played drums at the uh, town of Anuvik. It's called Gloria Hall. Every morning, like, I would go to the gym while everybody do their chores. I'd rather go to the drums and bang, you know, bang it all the time. And, and at the time, there was a famous singer there named Louis Goose. Him and I, we got together after six six months of drumming. And then later on, Moses Kalanick, Lawrence Roger, Jerome Tucker, and then the Cordells were born. And the Cordells were were one of the uh, first bands, Inuit bands in the Northwest Territories, you know, like our names got all over the place. But people look up to you because you're a drummer and you're a singer and, and, you're, and you're part of a band that makes everybody happy, you know, and uh, it was a big change in my life. The Cordells started out as a classic 1960s high school rock band, filling auditoriums and dance halls with covers of the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. But all that changed one night when a complete stranger approached them in the middle of a show to give his two cents on their musical direction. This man came out from nowhere. He came to our table. He said, that, you know, you guys are a very exciting band, but did you know that if you write your own traditional Inuit music, that you will go far? And this old man uh, uh, knew a lot about our culture, knew a lot about our legends, how we lived a long time ago, and how powerful we were in our land. And then we all got excited about this uh, old man uh, telling us that we should write legends about our people, you know, and... Apparently, I was only the one that remembered what the old man had said, and, and that's where I am today because of him. When the members of the Cordells finished high school and were pulled in different directions with life and work, the band decided to split up. But Willie says he kept what that stranger told him in his head. He never stopped making indigenous rock and eventually landed a recording deal with the CBC. When 
CBC put the album out, Spirit Child. I started getting calls, you know, like CBC put me on the radio station, television right across Canada and Europe. And then I started playing big festivals and traveling, you know, like I, I never dreamed that I was going to be a traveler and a songwriter and a singer that's going to go to all these festivals and meet big names like Buffy Snake, Marie, be on the same stage on the same day with Lightfoot, Colin James, Blue Rodeo. You know, I felt I felt like uh, Mick Jagger. The CBC recorded a lot of records. You know, we're getting into the hundreds. They had different categories. They had a classical music division. They had a light music division. They had a jazz music division. And they recorded a lot of indigenous native talent as well. That's Kevin House, an archivist, curator, and DJ whose obsession with music and its history has driven him all across Canada into our small town used record bins. And over the years, these records that were intended for broadcast play are sent to journalists or media people, trickled out, people pass away. And some of these recordings would end up in thrift stores and used record stores. And, you know, dating back to the early, or early 2000s, late 1990s, when I'm doing the rounds, I'm going to the flea market, I'm traveling around looking for records and actually starting to travel across Canada, I'd see some of these CBC recordings. And being raised in Canada... You know, I was raised with the CBC and, and watched a lot of CBC television and listened to some CBC radio. So when I was looking through the used record bins and, and I spotted the, the iconic 70s CBC logo stamped to a record, I immediately, my ears perked up and I was like, what is this? When you drop the needle on a record that has power and strength and a lot of history behind it and weight behind it, it can literally like knock you right to the ground. It's a really powerful thing. Kevin has spearheaded two reissue projects with Light in the Attic Records and collaborated on many more. Most recently, Native North America Volume 1, the compilation of modern indigenous music that featured Willie, along with other folk, rock, and country artists. I bought the album for my aging hippie father for Christmas, knowing only Willie's songs. On Christmas morning, we sat around the record player listening to all three discs. My dad couldn't stop talking about the drums, and I was lying on the floor feeling how I did about Willie's album ten times more intensely. At the end of the day, I made my dad leave it at my house. He asked about it for two months until I finally gave it back. Son of the sun, son of the earth, the soul of life, the children of the world, daughters of starlight, daughters of mirth, sisters of sunlight. 
sisters of earth, brothers of nature, brothers of old. I guess an artist like Willie Dunn was a huge catalyst for me in terms of what was going on in the indigenous music scene in Canada in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s. From Willie Dunn, I learned about other artists. But what I found in a lot of cases, especially with the indigenous artists, were that these artists and their stories and their music was not promoted by the Canadian music industry at the time of release. They weren't thought to be as important or worthy of promotion, or they didn't have the financial push behind them that major record labels could offer an artist. So these stories were really left on the grooves of the record and in the minds of the artists and their producers and independent record label owners and record store owners and fans from the era. These records inform us of the days gone by. It's so much more than a so much more than a song, or a disposable piece of pop. You know, they're artifacts. They have music. Music resonates with the soul. That fairly recent history is very important because it is the birth of the music business, the recorded music scene in Canada. But now we have an ugly spirit, no. And he walks around in a good disguise. And he comes in the color of our people. You can always see it in their eyes. One thing I've learned through these projects, and just through life in general, obviously, as we all know, that's very fragile and we've lost great artists over the years. During the making of Native North America, we lost the great Willie Dunn. And I was able and blessed to spend time with him before his passing and his family in Ottawa. But we're losing these artists, so it's time to celebrate them and recognize them for their contributions. Spiritchild wasn't a huge commercial success, but Willie Thrasher never stopped making music. Native North America led him to booking cross-country tours with the other surviving artists on the compilation. He was a featured act in Levitation Festival with his partner, Linda Saddleback. And last year, a documentary was made about his life and music. It's like the sunset coming up again. Like all, all these singers that were, were releasing the albums at the time are back up on the light again. And it's such an honor for me to be part of it. After Maya Roshin told me about the compilation, I had to go out and buy it. It's this beautiful triple LP with a big orange book full of archival images and stories about each of the artists on it. And that's what makes it more than just an album of music. It documents the social and political upheaval that inspired these songs as a mode of resistance. You hear about the first all-Indigenous film crew. You hear songs that were written against the backdrop of police raids in the Red Power Movement. Songs from the last generation of residential school survivors. 
I do have some questions about how the album came together and about the way it's presented and who benefits from it. And we'll get to all that. But first, I was dying to hear more stories from the artists themselves. A lot of them aren't that easy to find, though, because they've either passed away or they live in remote communities and might have moved around in the decades since they made the recordings. But I did get Willie Mitchell on the phone. There are a lot of guys named Willie on this album, and you'll be hearing about all of them. Willie Mitchell was a great storyteller, and I was pretty surprised by how he talked about residential school. Actually, it was a lot of fun, uh, residential school for us, my brother and me. The girls were crazy about us because we showed up with long hair. We had long hair way before the Beatles. My late mom always made sure we had long and clean hair. You're supposed to look like an Indian. We showed up there, and the, the nuns and all them, and they didn't agree with that. But they had to wait two weeks because the haircut day just passed. So for two weeks, uh, the girls were grabbing our hair and kissing us. Let me kiss your tongue now. <laughs> Stuff like that. Hey, let's do that again. <laughs> There are a lot of memories from that time that still live with Willie now. Like, he told me about this time he got a lashing on his hands for something he didn't do, and how his hands still heat up when he thinks about it. It's also where he learned how to sing. There was this one nun who couldn't sing anymore because she had asthma, but she really pushed him and helped him with his pitch. I wrote her a letter from the bark of a tree I was telling her that I would soon be there As the fire was lifting, my mind started drifting Drifting like the smoke curled in the air The TV flaps were open Willie started a rock band called the Northern Lights with some friends on the Kitikan Zibi Reserve near Manawaki, Quebec. In 1969, they were putting up these handmade posters for a show at the local community hall. And around 10 p.m. that night, something happened that had a profound effect on the rest of Willie's life and the type of music he was making. On the way home, we met up with one of my friend's younger brothers. He was always trying to hang around with us, but we didn't like him with us. He was an irresponsible jerk and stole from anybody and we used to steal but we'd steal from the rich and we'd fix up the bikes and change parts and whatever and we'd sell them to the poor kids but anyway this kid stole uh, two light bulbs from a snowman big floodlight and he said this is going to look good on stage tomorrow night he says and I said you shouldn't have taken these Richard why you bring that to us and just as I said that, a cop came around the corner. He looked me right in the eye, and he looked at the lights, and he, he was so close I could have kicked his car. Willie made a run for the bushes. And I heard two shots when I was crossing the street. I heard the third shot, but I felt funny. I was flying through the air, slow, slow motion. It took forever to fly and land in the snow and... The snow was flying away in a jerking motion. And then I hit a tree with my collar, and I broke my collarbone, and I woke up. He was shot in the face. I put my finger in my 
my face to stop the bleeding. I could feel that my teeth in there. He saw some houses in the distance, and he started walking toward them to try to get help. And I walked down the hill, and that cop was behind me. He still had his gun, too. I rang the doorbell, and I walked in, and a woman came, and I pulled my finger out, and I bled all over her, and I said, call me an ambulance, and I fell on the floor. I seen two little girls under a table. She was telling them, go to your bedroom. Willie woke up in a hospital in Ottawa. The next morning, the radio was saying that I got shot and killed. So up till about 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, that's when people started realizing that I was in Ottawa fighting for my life. So the band uh, decided to do the, do the show anyway. So they set everything up at the hall, and uh, they had my guitar there and uh, my amplifier. And the, the bass player was using my amp. My amp was a cheap Sears guitar amp. And later on during the show, they started smelling something burning, and the amplifier caught on fire. And two guys had to take it outside and throw it in the snow. And everybody was laughing. They were saying, yeah, Willie's here. (laughs) Stuff like that. He would end up staying at the hospital for almost four weeks. And at the end of it, some reporters had to sneak him out because the RCMP was waiting outside. Willie says they were waiting to charge him for stealing those light bulbs. But he really thinks they were out there because they didn't want the media to talk to him. He filed a lawsuit for $175,000 and he ended up getting $3,000. After all the expenses... He was left with 500, so he bought a Fender Telecaster Thin Line, the same guitar that Johnny Cash's lead guitarist used. He still plays that thing today. The name of the song is Call of the Moose. In 1980, Willie Mitchell and his friend Jeanne Poirier brought indigenous musicians from across the continent to Val d'Or, Quebec, for a two day gathering called Sweetgrass Festival. Willie Thrasher was there, along with other artists from the Native North America compilation, like Morley Loon. I listen to the older folks, to what they have to say. And I listen to the waterfall, begging for another day. And I listen to... Performers came out of this half-teepee that they'd built on stage, and they hired this guy named Guy Charbonneau, not the hockey player, to drive this souped-up truck from near Montreal to record the festival. Willie didn't know it at the time, but Deep Purple recorded the song Smoke on the Water in that truck, and before that, it belonged to the Rolling Stones. Anyway, they recorded the festival out of that truck and released it as a live LP. The producer of uh, Native North America found it in an old bookshop in Vancouver and he gave it a listen and that's what gave him the idea to make that compilation. Otherwise he would have been making a a compilation on uh, Polish music or even Italian or something, you know. So he got in contact with me and we took it from there. I wondered if Willie wished that he had been the one to make Native North America. Well, I would have liked to do it, but 
I think Kevin Howes was more uh, the guy for the job. He had the experience and he had the connections. He he had the know-how. Plus he had light light in the attic records too to back him up. He did a great job with the the product itself. Looks like a hardcover book. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's no other CDs like it. A lot of the artists on Native North America were hugely influenced by mainstream music. Bands like the Beatles, the Who, and Johnny Cash. I wanted to know whether Native North America had found its way to a new generation of indigenous musicians working in similar genres. Like, what would it have been like to think that Canadian music from the 60s and 70s was just Joni Mitchell and Bruce Coburn, and then find out that Willie Thrasher and Willie Mitchell were playing some of those same stages? A friend told me about this young guy named Jeremy Paul from northern BC. He's got this solo project called Saltwater Hank, and he plays in a bluegrass band called Black Spruce Bog. Here's a song by them called Coyote Number One. One of my favorite old country blues artists is Jimmy Rogers, and he had all of these, all of these things that he called the blue yodels. So that rather than having a regular song title, he would just have uh, blue yodel number one and blue yodel, blue yodel number two, all the way up to like blue yodel number nine. So the song Coyote Number One is kind of a, an homage to that. And also, it it uh, talks about the the trickster character, the coyote. And basically, what the song is about is sort of that that uh, environmental protection is really a farce because if if a company like like an oil or a gas company wants an area like you know out here, the amount of money that they have will sort of shove any environmental protections out of the way but really i mean all the song all the lyrics are talking about is the coyote having a hunger for chinese food and then eventually trading the deed for the country for an endless amount of chow mein Licked his lips and wiggled his nose and he hustled down the street. He followed his nose to Chinatown, much to his delight. The back door of a restaurant was open, so he thought he might take a glance inside. Perhaps he could sneak in, but the cook was near the door, so he hid behind the trash. Been too long, he thought, since I had I actually forget who showed me this album, um, the Native North America, Volume One, but it was a couple of years ago, and uh, I found it interesting because it's it's so raw, and like a lot of these artists that are on here are, you know, talking about things that are overtly political in a time that it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't very safe to be um, as 
political and outspoken as these artists were. And I was actually surprised that I hadn't heard of any of the artists that were on the compilation. You know, Willie Dunn is, you know, he released this one song, I Pity the Country, which is my favorite, in 1973. And, you know, at the same time, the American Indian movement was in full force. The occupation of Wounded Knee was occurring. And, you know, there was a lot of political tension between indigenous and non-indigenous worlds. I pity the country I pity the state And the mind of a man Who thrives on hate Smaller the lives Of cheats and of liars Of bigoted news press Fascist town crier Deception annoys me This is actually my favorite song on the album, too. Like, it has a kind of quiet defiance to it that makes me feel angry and heartbroken at the same time. Willie Dunn kind of reminds me of the American folk singer Phil Oakes. They're both more overtly political than their contemporaries, and even though their work had a huge impact, they didn't manage to break the mainstream, but it still feels relevant now. Like, people still share their songs to shit on liberals and nationalism, and it doesn't feel stale. Unfortunately, Willie Dunn died four years ago, and I regret that I didn't know about him before he did. Anyway, here's Jeremy again. There's these like beautifully written, poetic, political songs. There's also artists that are just singing in their own language, which is an act of decolonization within itself. Like, um, sick of mute, I think, if I can pronounce that properly. But like, yeah, they're an example of that, which is, it is cool that, to, to know that this kind of stuff was happening like decades and decades ago. Seek a mute, seek a mute, bingo and elemento, litany, elonatiny, a hoibo. Seek a mute, seek a mute, bingo and elemento. Jeremy was raised in a musical family that played a lot of folk and country standards like Hank Williams and Johnny Cash. But when Jeremy started making music, it sounded like this. The band I was in was called Gabao, and Gabao is a black metal band. And we were exploring our cultural roots pretty heavily and combining our traditions with black metal. And we did that through having our lyrics, most of the lyrics, written in our language, Somalia. Being on the coast and being in touch with the land and the landscapes 
is kind of similar to what black metal bands were doing in Norway in the sense that they were doing an act of resistance against Christianity because it had, you know, come in and destroyed paganism. And a lot of the lyrics in black metal are like talking about pagan themes and this sort of thing. So parallels can be drawn between that and what we were singing about as well. But eventually he moved away from black metal for a bunch of reasons. One of the reasons was racism. You know, there's like some straight up like white power black metal bands that we ran into. You know, there was all kinds of internet wars and all this kind of stuff, but that got tiring. And the other reason is that even though he was singing in his own language, black metal is shockingly not that accessible. He likes that folk music is kind of built for singing along with, and now he tours around northern BC singing hyper-local songs about the land. People have, you know, come up and, and said, oh, I know this such-and-such person that you're talking about in your song, or like, you know, when I'm singing, singing a song that is, is talking about clean water uh, in, instead of oil development, then, uh, yeah, people around here get stoked, I guess. Okay, I just want to say that it's really important for the music on Native North America to be out there. But I did have some questions about how it gets out there. We're living in a time of reissue. Major institutions are starting to recognize the value of what's been omitted from their grand narratives, and they're trying to make up for it. But there's something about the idea of the reissue that rubs me the wrong way. It's this idea of rediscovering something that's inevitably part of how it's framed for the imagined spectator. It always makes me think about who's representing the work, how they're representing it, and who's getting paid for it. And these questions don't have easy answers. But I can imagine that these issues come up a lot because when I spoke to Willie Mitchell, I didn't even have to ask him whether he'd ever gotten a raw deal. He just started telling me about what happened with the recordings from Sweetgrass Music. A few years after, a German, a German company called me. They were asking me if, if I still had the master tapes, and I told them, yes, I do, and they're put away in a cool, dry place. And they were all excited, and they said, we'd like to borrow them to take out some of the, the artists so that we could make a, a CD. CDs were just coming out, and so I thought it was a good idea. And they made two, three, three CDs out of the project, which wasn't in the in the agreement. But nevertheless, they uh, they did a good job. But we never heard from them after. We never got royalties for that. The complicated part is that those CDs that they made got him international press and radio play, and he did get royalties from that. But it's not only about the money. Well, I, I think it's more important to be heard in my case because uh, I'm trying to educate people indirectly about our culture and just to trying to paint different pictures in people's minds. But why do artists keep having to wrestle with the question of money versus exposure? Like, it'd be great to get both. So obviously I had to ask these questions about Native North America too. Willie told me that he is getting paid by the label, Light in the Attic. 
and he was actually surprisingly candid about it. They sent me a check, a quarterly check. Uh, it's not much. It, it varies. $80 here or 180 there sometimes. Per song, say three songs are pretty well active. But one thing that makes Willie Mitchell different from other artists on the compilation is that he owns the copyright to his music. That's not the case with some of the others. Less than half of the 34 songs on the album are licensed from the artists themselves. The rest come from independent labels, cultural centers, and from the CBC. The CBC holds the license for 10 of them, and they were all created by artists from, quote, the North by CBC's Northern Service. Like Kevin Howes mentioned at the top, these were broadcast-only recordings that were pressed in small numbers to be given to people in the music industry and the artists themselves. These weren't meant to be breakout rock albums. The point was not to make Seek Mute the next Neil Young. The fact that they only pressed 500 of each of these discs made them rare collectibles. They became artifacts by design. And I just want to say here that even though I know this reissue is an act of care that was exhaustively researched, the liner notes still kind of read like descriptions of artifacts. Kevin Howes' intro uses the words, quote, our Aboriginal music makers. And even though he spoke to all the artists for their bios, there isn't a single quote from any one of them. One of the artists is described as having lived on the streets of Montreal battling alcoholism until he died, quote, despite his positive demeanor and deep love of music. Another artist is said to have died tragically in a house fire with no explanation for why that might have happened. The music on the album itself is far more radical than the frame. And the thing about it is, when your work is framed as an artifact, its worth gets tied to who owns it more than who created it. I spent weeks trying to figure out how and whether these artists were getting paid, and in the end, I got conflicting answers. Music licensing is a little bit complicated, so bear with me here. Light in the Attic, the record label, pays out two types of royalties. One goes to the publisher, who is usually the songwriter, and one goes to whoever owns the master recordings. Willie Mitchell owns his own master, so he gets both types of royalties. For those 10 songs recorded by CBC Northern Service, Light in the Attic gives money to the CBC, who's responsible for then passing on the royalties to the artists, if that's what the original contract stated. But when we contacted the CBC, they denied that they're responsible for paying royalties and said that they hadn't gotten any royalties from Light in the Attic for this project. Then Light in the Attic says they've paid the CBC at least six times, and the last check was cashed at the end of April. Now, I don't think there's any kind of grand cover-up going on here, and there's not a whole lot of money on the line. But the reason this is important is because of the larger question of whose art is it that gets treated like an artifact. And it's not just about these 10 recordings. The CBC Northern Service recorded 75 artists and made 120 records, and they still own the masters. And unless you happen to stumble across one of these records at a flea market, those masters are the only way to listen to them. And a lot of major public institutions still own these kinds of archives. So the larger question here is what should they be doing with all this stuff?
While we were making this episode, I heard about a young opera singer who's dealing with this question in a completely different way. Jeremy Dutcher found out about these field recordings of his community's traditional songs from the early 1900s, and he's incorporating them into compositions that he terms indigenous classical music. It's almost as if he's collaborating with his ancestors. Our conversation covered so much ground, and he was so funny, that we ended up making it a whole other episode. Go listen to part two right now. On this episode, you heard from Jeremy Paul, who wrote a political anthem about a coyote who eats Chinese takeout. You also heard from Willie Mitchell, Willie Thrasher, Kevin Howes, and Maya Roisin Slater, whose house you should basically never leave your records at if you ever want to see them again. The songs you heard were Spirit Child, Old Man Carver, and We Gotta Take You Higher by Willie Thrasher, Fall Away by Sugluk, I Pity the Country and Son of the Sun by Willie Dunn, Kill in Your Mind and Birch Bark Letter by Willie Mitchell and the Desert River Band, Call of the Moose by Willie Mitchell, Seek a Mute by Seek a Mute, Gisi Gwel Gwel by Gibao, and Coyote Number no. 1 by Black Spruce Bog. You can find all the music on this episode plus some extras at canadalandshow.com slash imp. This episode of The Imposter was produced by Kevin Sexton and I with contributions from Maya Roisin Slater and assistance from Katie Jensen. Our theme music is by Nathan Burley. You can follow us on Twitter at Impster, that's I-M-P-S-T-R, and you can follow me at Aaliyah Pabani. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash CanadaLand, and if you liked this episode of The Imposter, go listen to part two. That was The Imposter, I Pity the Country, part one, of a two-part series. If you want to hear the second part of that, you should subscribe to The Imposter. Go to canadalandshow.com slash imp. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.